Hello and welcome to Between the Mountains podcast with me, Chris, and today we're not quite talking about backpacking to expeditions. We're chatting with Emily Thomas, the author of The Meaning of Travel, which is such an incredible book. I've just put it down yesterday and it really is great. It covers such good information in such an easy to read manner that centers around her trip to Alaska. A really fun session chatting with her and talking about all things philosophy and travel. If you're the type of person who enjoys getting outdoors, getting into your own head and having a think about things, then I think you're really going to enjoy the book and I think you'll really enjoy the podcast too. But with no further ado, let's just get straight into it. So Emily, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. So for those who don't know, Emily is Associate Professor in Philosophy at Durham University. Alongside working in the Netherlands and writing on metaphysics, Emily has actually written a book called The Meaning of Travel, which is now released. Uh, in the other podcast I was listening to, you said that it's the first of its kind? I think that that is true. Yeah. I think that other people have written about philosophy and travel before um, in various contexts, but as far as I know, this is the first book looking at philosophy of travel from through history. So it starts in the 16th century and looks yeah. at philosophical issues all the way to the present day. And it really is a fantastic book. So I just finished up reading it yesterday. <laughs> um, uh, so it's, it's taken me a while because I've been quite busy. But when, when you pick it up, it's hard to put it back down again. And it's, it's really great. The way I describe it is it's informational and written with the same level of information you would find in a dissertation, perhaps. Uh, a good one. <laughs> um, but it's written without all the academic formalities, I think. I'd actually say it's, it's incredibly easy to read and the information goes in exactly as you'd want it to as a thought experiment, as new information, rather than John Stuart Mill trying to figure out what the hell he's on about. So, um, Thanks. I'm glad to hear that. I uh, worked really hard on trying to make difficult ideas easy to read. So that's good to hear. Oh, well, you're welcome. Um, and it's also uh, good to know that you're an avid traveller too. You are a, a, a not a backpacker, but you've done plenty of backpacking, would be fair to say. Yeah, and I think I definitely was a backpacker for many years <laughs> when yeah. I was younger. But even though now it's a little bit harder having a full-time job, I'm still travelling a lot whenever I can, honestly. Yeah, perfect. So the first question is all about Alaska. So the, the book centres around your time in Alaska and, and you very naturally, at the sort of beginning and end of each chapter, have a bit more information about where you're going in the hate to say it because an Americanism but your journey uh, in, uh, <laughs> in uh, Alaska. Um, so what were your reasons for going to Alaska? I have always wanted to go to Alaska and um, if you were to ask me a few years ago to write up a wish list of places to see, Alaska's been on it for a long time. Um, but the decision to go to Alaska was quite impulsive. Uh, I had just finished a big research project and I decided I really wanted a break, that going somewhere really different would be good for me. Um, and I decided to pick somewhere as different as I could think of from the Netherlands, which is where I was currently living. And the Netherlands is beautiful, but it's a very kind of chocolate box pretty. It, lots of um, <laughs> narrow leaning houses, gorgeous canals. The landscape is very flat, often very cultivated. 
and, and Alaska, in contrast, in my head, was this place of mountains, it's much wilder, it's obviously a lot colder, you have all the fascinating wildlife. And so I thought it would be an utter, an utter break from where I was. Yeah, the Netherlands is quite um, flat. Um, yes, extremely flat. Uh, which, is, which is a brilliant segue into the next question, which is that how does Alaska compare to your typical trips that you do? It's beautifully barren. It is beautifully barren. I really like barren places, actually. Yeah. That's something that I've sought out over the years, which is a slightly strange thing to say. Um, I, I enjoy empty places, I think. There's something I find quite reassuring about how much of the planet humans don't have very much to do with. Mm. And visiting those places can be really pleasant. Yeah. 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 Perfect. It, um, it was also, I think, a typical me trip in the sense um, I was by myself I'm sort of wandering around cities and taking car journeys by myself and um, which is the sort of thing I've done a lot of over the years I don't know if you've been there but you find the same thing with Iceland yeah? especially if you do the ring road trip there I went there uh, uh, thankfully it was the last trip I did that was sort of coach excursion style uh, yeah, but yeah. what I did see was just that beautifully barren place that that remote it, with the waterfalls rushing off, it feels like it's just come out of the ocean and, yeah, and there's no yeah. one around and you're, you're driving about. Um, have you ever been to Iceland yourself too? I have actually, yeah, yeah a long time ago. Yeah, and the fact there's just one big city, it feels like there's one hub of civilization yeah. and everything else is automatically rural. It's a stunning yeah. country, extremely expensive is also what I remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, uh, yeah. My first night there, I, bu I bought myself and, uh, um, and the mother of my daughter uh, a, a three-course meal, nothing major. We had one bottle of cider, and we had tap water, uh, and it came to 105 quid. Oh uh, goodness! And I was, I was like, okay, this, this is how it is. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. It's not a backpacking easy place. No. So the book discusses so many fascinating topics from a variety of philosophers, and in each chapter, actually, what I like is you you give contrasting views. You don't just pick the one that you like the most and we chat about those. You always give a counter to it, which is fantastic. And I was wondering, did you have a, a more favorite or relatable philosopher when you're doing your research? That's a really good question. I definitely became closer to some philosophers through doing this research. So generally, in the kind of work I do, you're just looking at theories. But, you know, you, you're reading technical books and you're thinking about how does this theory of time actually work? The nice thing about writing the travel book is that I was reading biographies and trying to understand how these philosophical beliefs about travel meshed with the philosophers' own traveling experiences. So people like Descartes, I really hadn't appreciated that he was a soldier for so many years, or that when he became a full-time writer, he was constantly moving around. He didn't live in a city for more than three months as an adult. Um, he, was, yeah, he was a bit of a vagabond, just continually moving from place to place. And that kind of stuff um, gave me a sense of the people behind the ideas, which was very welcome. Perfect. Yeah, I, I actually quite liked him too. <laughs> and, um, and him and Bacon, I quite liked in the book. So, yeah, yeah. Francis Bacon is also a character. I, 
Francis Bacon is one of those people. His life seems so unreal. Um, you know, sailing from the absolute heights of political ascendancy in the UK to being charged with all kinds of things and then dying after packing a chicken with frozen snow. And I feel like if you wrote it as fiction, it would be implausible. Yeah. <laughs> so what are your thoughts on and while we're talking about De- De- Descartes um <laughs> if I can say it properly um on teaching about travel in the schooling system I would love to see more talk about travel in the schooling system I think it would be important to put it in a social context in that travel has always been a privilege. Um, and the history of travel starts in the 17th century with the Grand Tour, where you have extremely wealthy, privileged, mostly young men uh, wandering off around Europe. Yeah, and they were largely British, other nationalities got involved too, but it was quite a British thing. Um, and in the Western world, that's really the start of tourism. So I think teaching children geography is super important teaching them about travel and historical and philosophical issues around travel i think always stressing that this isn't a right it's a privilege and some for some people it's more accessible than others mm. would matter yeah yeah it might I mean, yeah Perfect. so you go <laughs> no i was gonna say that it, it hopefully it'll, i think it should be taught at least at a primary school level uh, and then, and then maybe if you, know, you want to be more serious topics in secondary school, you go for it. But I think it would actually teach people to be more open-minded and more accepting of diverse, yeah. especially when they're at, they're at an age where they, you know, they don't care, especially with a, you know, at time of recording, BLM movement is, is quite big um, and should be. And, you know, kids don't care about that. They just go, Oh, he's a nice person. Oh, look, he's carrying two footballs. What's he doing there? Oh, hello. <laughs> Which is a direct quote from my daughter. Um, and yeah. I think at an age where that is, you know, it's not even an issue. I think getting teaching about diversity and traveling different cultures would be quite good. So, yeah, I, I think so too. I think that would be brilliant. And I, I mean, all of us are so set in our ways, it, it, every single person on earth, um, and all of our ways are going to be different from one another. I think anything that shakes us out of local ways of thinking is a good thing. And starting that earlier seems like a great idea. Yeah, for sure. And there's two questions that come off the back of that. So uh, one is about balancing and one is about uh, travel itself. So uh, I can't remember, uh, was it Montaigne in the book? Uh, He basically, it might have been Montaigne. He talks about how uh, there is no more travel. Uh, There is only tourism. And I think when you look at the amount of McDonald's there are, (laughs) <laughs> in the world you know there is an argument that there is that but but i'd say although he's onto something you can still go out and travel I, I was wondering what were your thoughts on that so this was an argument that the historian paul fussell made back in the 1980s yeah. and, and fussell argues partly i think as a result of increasing globalization um, that, that there's no such thing as exploring or travel anymore all that we have left are these tourist experiences and they're pre-packaged for us so i think what he has in mind here is that you turn up at a tourist destination you're put on a coach you're given a pre-packaged mm. explanation of what you should look at and what's going on um, and that's it there's no sense of discovery or, or seeing anything new and um, and 
I think he's right that it's harder to get these new unfamiliar experiences and the fact that there are these huge companies that pop up in every city around the globe means that more parts of the globe are going to be familiar to more of us mm. but I also think it is completely possible to just get off the beaten track and see things in a way that's not prepackaged to discover stuff that's new for ourselves I really really do actually yeah um, and it's not even that hard it's when you go to countries you know if you hit all the top tourist sites it's sure and um, it's difficult to get away from that prepackaged feeling but you don't have to go very far away from the big sites to have a sense of really discovering stuff that other people are not discovering in the same way yeah i'd agree and in fact on another podcast i was chatting with one of the um one of the guests about where do you draw the line to say you've been to a country you know is it going to a convention and you saw the city via taxi on your way to and from the hall and then you can go brilliant i've been to finland um or is it going out and experiencing the nature is it going to every single region is it living there is it learning the language like where do you draw the line on having seen a country and i think once you start yeah. realizing that it's only that first level that you lose that you, well, you start to gain the unfamiliarity back, I think. Yeah, um, I think that's true. I definitely think what really matters with travel is this sense of unfamiliarity. Mm. And what's unfamiliar to one person is going to be different to what's unfamiliar to the next. And so we all have to seek it out, the stuff that is new to us. Mm, for sure. And the other question, like I mentioned, was about balancing. So the grand tourists are got slammed for being uh, sort of indulging only in sensual pleasures. You can take that as you like, listeners. Uh, and there's a Kamu, mood was I think we were talking before. So I was trying to clarify his name. It's spelt Camus. It's Camus, I think you said. Camus. Yeah. Camus. Right. So he writes that we shouldn't say that we travel for pleasure. He says that we should, be, you know, be spiritual testing ourselves. So I wanted to delve into a bit more behind your motives behind traveling because what you learn from social science is that it's often a mixture, but sometimes it can also be that trip was central pleasure. And then the other trip was, um, was spiritual testing for you. How do you balance it and what are your motives? I think for myself, it's definitely a mix. And hmm. um, one novelist said that he wanted to travel just because he had this desperate urge to know how things were elsewhere and I think for myself that was a big part of it the world is enormous and we don't live for very long we can't see very much of it in our lifetimes but I wanted to get out and see as much of it as I could so that was definitely part of it but there are things I've done that I suspect also Camus would approve of right so traveling by myself for me I find that harder than traveling with other people but then that's part of the motivation for doing it actually yeah. it is a bit more of a challenge and I also I think for me it's been more rewarding and um, I get to meet more people um, I feel like I've had random adventures that would not have happened if I'd been with other people especially as a woman alone I think you look really harmless and <laughs> that leads people to invite you to do things that might just not happen otherwise. Yeah, you might not be approached otherwise. Yeah, but I'd also be lying if I said there was no pleasure in it. I've thoroughly enjoyed all of it. Mm. 
Yeah. And then I'm older and have a bit more money and I'm spending more than $5 a day. Um, That's nice, actually, that being able to try a range of um, more expensive foods, for example, Mm. rather than just whatever I could buy, absolute cheapest (laughs) from a stand. Yeah, although the challenge is sometimes nice to see how cheap can I make this, but then you often come back scarred. (laughs) Yes, I think that's true, yeah. But but, So um, John Locke says, uh, and and again, this is a quote I've got from the book, uh, that all of our ideas come from perceiving the world or reflecting on existing ideas. So Mm. I wanted to ask you about the Dalton Highway, which is a, a, a blinging long road um did you have any epiphanies or any ideas or thoughts that came along while you were just driving and driving and driving Hmm. so the dalton highway as you say it's a very long road it um it cuts up almost the whole way through the center of alaska um and it's been made famous by these ice road trucker tv shows yeah the documentaries yeah yes (laughs) i was not driving it in winter i should add which i think is when they get the really stunning scenery photographs and I'm not sure I had any epiphanies while I was on it except that I definitely experienced the way that your own mood can affect your perception of the landscape so for large parts of the trip I was really enjoying it and I and the landscape seemed extra beautiful and almost cheerful I think despite how barren it was and whereas towards the end of the trip I began to get a bit melancholy because I'd been by myself for many hours (laughs) by this point and and then the landscape itself began to seem like more hostile less welcoming and I think that phenomena it's certainly not a thought that's unique to me. It's something that travel writers have talked about for centuries, but I definitely really experienced it on that road. Yeah, and it's fantastic that you talk about perception there, because again, from the book, you mentioned that you're looking at the raw landscape and it looked sad, uh, which meant that you felt sad. And, And it's so fascinating because one of the reasons I like traveling alone is that it leaves you exposed to your own head. And I find that actually strengthens me because I, you know, there are times where it's a little bit sort of like, oh, oh I am on my own. <laughs> and, you know, and that's when all the, all the vulnerabilities start egging at you and you go, oh, what about this? <laughs> Whereas, you know, the rational brain sort of, you know, your front lobe kind of shuts off for a bit. Um, yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. It's great, great to hear perspective on that and, um, and how perception does actually change how you look. Um, yeah, how you yeah. look I, I definitely think that that's true. The nice thing about being by yourself Oh, there's this quote from Freya Stark where she talks about how that she doesn't like traveling with a European companion because the two of them will form this European cell mm. and they'll kind of block out um, influences coming from the outside world. And I do get that. Yeah. I think, it, yeah, I feel more open to things coming from the outside world when I'm by myself. But you see that, don't you? Big, big uh, people who go um, traveling and they obviously have a different discourse than me and they uh they like to drink on different beaches and they have therefore been to malaysia and indonesia and, and they kind of hang out in their big groups and don't talk to other people which they do them that's not impacting me in any way but I, I think also that for me anyway that that comes from you know, there's an example i went to cyprus as a kid uh, my brother couldn't come so uh my uh, and i was for whatever reason at the time, I just wasn't into exploring. I just wanted to sit at a, at a hotel for, for a week. Um, 
and I remember it being so lovely and peaceful and all I could hear was not English around me and then this English family came down and they brought the culture with them and they were they were doing the games um, like the game of bowls and they were doing the archery and they were shouting and getting all antsy when the competitive and I was like wow so yeah I quite like that the idea of not traveling as someone from where you're from where you're from yeah yeah maybe not to the extreme of pushing everyone out (laughs) just maybe not a big group (laughs) yes it's also lovely to meet people yeah for sure for sure I mean someone like the US is it's so easy as a native English speaker because most of the people you meet English will be very easy for them like it's a very easy country to get by in by yourself yeah yeah so I wanted to talk a bit about the uh, like we were talking about before we hit record the colours aspect uh, and and, and yeah, if you could, in your own words, without me butchering, explain what that is and with the different linguists. But also, on the back end of that explanation, I'd love it if you could tell me some of the interesting facts that you found uh, when you were travelling. So, the way that humans perceive colour it can be an example of assumptions that we make about the brain that actually turn out to be false. Mm. So I certainly assumed before I began reading about this that most human beings perceive colour the same way. Um, I mean of course I know there's people who are colourblind but I assumed that most people around the world we divide colours up into the same categories blue, red, yellow, green. And what you discover, in fact, is that that's just not the case, <laughs> that different people around the world that divide up colours differently. Right? So in Japan, um, blue and green are often seem to be the same colour. They just have different hues, yeah, which is why it, um, in the UK and in Europe, traffic lights generally go uh, red, amber, green. But in Japan, they might go red, amber, blue, hmm. because they just seem to be the same colour. Yeah, and, and there's quite a lot of these things that we take for granted that all human beings must reason in the same way. Right? So you might think we would all use numbers in the same way. And actually, it turns out that there are some people who don't use numbers at all or who reason with them utterly differently. And all of these things seem to suggest that human brains really don't have even innate dispositions in the way that we see the world Mm. and that in fact uh, how we see the world really is a product of our experience and the the society that we grow up in that was brilliantly explained as well (laughs) thanks (laughs) and what were some of your favorite facts when you were when you were finding all these weird weird and wonderful things out what were some of the ones that you, you sort of chuckled and really enjoyed some of them are really strange. I some of the biographical facts about philosophers I thought were amazing. So Descartes, for example, he died in Sweden teaching Queen Christina. And, mm. and on the boat to Sweden, he took with him 3,000 books, which is quite a lot. <laughs> it would have been a fortune back then. Absolutely. Um, it, yeah, it, um, or about how, um, so Mary Wollstonecraft, it, she did this three-month trip around uh, like Norway and Sweden, and, and she really criticised the way that some of the Norwegian women looked. Um, she thought that they were sort of lazy, um, and that this extended to their appearance. Um, and when her book was later translated into Norwegian, she was absolutely slammed by it. <laughs> I mean, like later travel writers in the same region note almost gleefully how much Wollstonecraft 
is disliked because of the remarks she made about these women. Um, yeah, of course. Uh, some of the things I discovered were surprising. So, for example, there's a lot of uh, it's sort of what's the word that I want? Um, people hope that if you undertake travel to endangered places, that you will learn about them. That that will be a nice side effect of your journey. And there's been some studies suggesting that's just not true. So some surveys of Antarctic tourists found that some tourists actually knew less about Antarctic wildlife when they left the continent than before they arrived. And stuff like that I found really astounding. It seems to me that if you're going to this place, you're going to soak it all up. And in fact, that just wasn't the case at all. Perfect. Yeah, that, that is fascinating. Yeah. Good. Yeah, that's, that's throwing me off because, yeah, you, you're right. It's, you should learn more. Never mind. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, could, you could think, maybe, maybe there's a loophole. You could say, oh, I left with more questions, therefore I didn't. <laughs> I don't rest. That, that would be very reasonable. <laughs> no, that'd be your get out of course. <laughs> yeah. So we've already, oh, so no, you go, you go. Oh, oh no, I'm seeing, all good. Oh, okay, perfect. So we've, um, uh, we have already uh, talked about the perception. So I'll, uh, I'll go past that question. Um, let me get this one here. Okay, perfect. So we're going to talk about the book in, for a little bit now. So enough questions about philosophy and, uh, and travel there. So like I, like I said, the book has so much fantastic information and it's, and it's just such an easy read and enjoyable. So it was enjoyable for me to read it. The question is, how enjoyable was it for you to write it? It really, really enjoyable. Actually, that, that's a straightforward answer. I enjoyed writing it hugely. Perfect. A lot of what I do in my regular writing is very technical and very pernickety. Um, okay. the, you have to be extremely precise in scholarship. Um, it, it, everything has to be extremely clearly evidenced and there's no room for, for looseness or, or for more relaxed style of writing. Yeah. And actually writing this it was a really wonderful break from that. I mean, there's, as you say, there's still lots of information in there, but being able to write in a kind of looser, more engaging style was really fun, actually. Yeah, and and I, I got to learn all kinds of things that I didn't know before. And it's put me in touch with a lot of interesting people, which has been brilliant. It, yeah, the, the whole experience has been great, actually. Perfect. And, and you've got quite an eclectic range of chapters. Uh, and I was wondering, did the structure come together quite organically? Or did you put a lot of work into putting the chapters in order alongside the journey in Alaska? Melding the journey with Alaska with the content of the chapters happened very organically. Yeah. And it wasn't actually something I had intended to happen. But as I began writing and I was trying to explain why I was interested in this, that the journey just kept sneaking in. Mm. But as you know, the chapters and the Alaska journey are not always in order. So I skip around a bit with the Alaska journey. Yeah. And, and that's because putting the chapters in order did not happen organically. It, um, I experimented with several different structures. I, I thought about arranging them by theme at the beginning and, and in various different ways. And then eventually I thought, I think it does make most sense to just tell the story chronologically, start from the oldest material and then move forward. And, and the advantage of that is that it does 
provide a narrative as to philosophy's involvement with travel through the centuries. But no, that did not happen easily. That was an annoying and frustrating process. <laughs> In fact, probably yeah. the only part of the book that wasn't fun was figuring out <laughs> exactly how to tell that story. Perfect. And and talking about not fun, uh, and and there's there's no there's no personal opinion here. But um, you uh, mentioned John Stuart Mill, and um, I, I've I I read his stuff on utilitarianism for my degree in criminology. So I've got a bit of a, a bad bug about him because he I, I think he fails to explain anything in less than five thousand words. So uh, and this he is has a common philosophical problem. Yeah, which is a. You know, he has paragraph length sentences and, um, and, and it got, and it started the train, train of thought for me, which is naturally you've done a hell of a lot of reading to get this book. And, um, and it, it must make it more fluid when all you have to do is put the number next to it rather than a, a Harvard reference, but, um, uh, next, next to your each statement in the book. But how did you go about collecting all the information you had? And, and was there a way that you structured the information alone? to then insert it into the chapters? Or did you find it was in your head and it just came out? The information gathering process did not happen in an orderly fashion. Mm. I simply set out to read everything I could find about philosophy and travel. And at the beginning, I wasn't sure that I would find very much. So actually it was a real pleasure to discover, oh no, there's lots and lots of material here. Mm. Um, And then going down, reading one person's work it takes you down a rabbit hole where you then end up reading this and this in order to explain it and understand it and um, so the information gathering happened really quite randomly the actual writing was surprisingly smooth the mm. material was in my head and for the most part i would write it and then go back and, and double check the references it to make sure that i was reporting it in an accurate fashion and um, the information itself remains in a disorderly state. <laughs> My research notes that they're all in a couple of big folders, um, but they are not otherwise ordered. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> but that's fine. The book's written now, unless you're going to do a sequel. <laughs> I think that's true. Yeah. Yeah, I'm writing a few other things uh, relating to the book. So right now, um, I'm writing an article for History Today that I'm quite excited about, actually, about Mary Wollstonecraft, who was a traveller as well as a philosopher, Mm. and and looking at the parallels between the way that women philosophers and women travellers were treated in history. um, So a lot of the research I did for the book is still feeding through into new pieces which is also nice to see good it could be used for multiple reasons it's nice it's nice when you put a lot of time into something and and it can help you again further down the line yeah i think that's true and actually something philosophers professional philosophers at universities we tend to have really teeny tiny narrow specialisms so a really lovely thing about this is that i now know a lot about a lot of different things Mm. and actually that's great I feel like I have a wide angle lens on the history of philosophy that I didn't have before it's opening more doors too yeah definitely yeah Yeah. so being an academic writer uh, with your question you even ask what are maps and as soon as I saw the title of that uh, chapter two I believe uh is I had a flashback to university I mean we had a big lecture and at the time I had that typical 20-year-old mindset. She goes, well, what is truth? And I think the lecturer didn't quite 
deliver it as charismatically as could be. Um, I felt like she'd been burdened with this kind of difficult <laughs> lecture to give. So what is truth? But I left that lecture thinking, what is truth? And, and especially when you start thinking about psychosis and then, you know, you start thinking what, what is reality? And then you start getting the Truman Show effect and it's all horrible. <laughs> but, um, and, and, you know, you do plenty of thought, thought experience. And I was wondering, what's your opinion on it? Did you find yourself, you know, questioning things when you're, when you're out there traveling and having that escapism from the Netherlands? Yeah, I think I, I think I definitely did. But I also worry that I have that experience a lot. <laughs> I do so much philosophy. Yeah. I have taught a lecture on what is truth. <laughs> and yeah. that, as any good philosopher can tell you, is probably <laughs> truth has something to do with knowledge and justified belief. <laughs> but exactly how the answer runs is tricky. It is. I think I spend a lot of time in everyday life actually trying to think, is this really true? Like, what's the evidence that I have for believing this? Or trying to uncover assumptions that I didn't know I had. It, maps is a great example. I, I just assumed that a map is a straightforward thing. I really did. I just thought a map is a representation of the world and that's it. And then as soon as you begin to learn about the philosophy of maps and you discover that's not true at all, that maps are really complex and opaque and they're mapping lines of power and they're trying to persuade you of the thing. They are trying to persuade you of their version of reality. And that I had never considered that before, ever. And learning about those sorts of things makes me worry all the time about all the other stuff around me that I take for granted. Yeah. <laughs> that they're probably not straightforward at all. <laughs> yeah. And I think that is a good experience to regularly have, actually, to realise how little you know about things in the world. I think that's quite nice. Yeah. But like you mentioned earlier, a rabbit hole comes to mind. It yes. can get... I, I, I was young when it was released, but I was listening to a podcast that, that said it was an actual thing, the Truman Show effect. You had a lot of people... Uh, I, I began think that, to worry. Yeah. yeah, began to worry and I think were diagnosed with... I don't know if... I think it was still up for debate whether it was cause or effect. Um, yeah, okay. but, um, but, you know, whether that was the thing that made them realise they have mental disabilities or whether because of the show they suddenly started questioning everything. But, uh, yeah, it's a... I see that. It's a bit like... Some people have that reaction to watching The Matrix, I think. Yeah. It seems like there is no way to disprove that we're living in a Matrix. And, in fact, now this theory's become really popular that we're all living in a computer simulation. <laughs> yeah, and there seems no way to disprove this. But um, quantum it, physics, just uh, to, to much of our... Um, comfort, you'll be glad to know. I, I, I think a study came out that said it was confirmed that we're not living in a reflection. Well, that's so, good. Yeah. <laughs> Which is great. Something. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that. I mean, all of this, of course, starts with Rene Descartes. I, you know, he posits that we might be completely deceived in everything we do by a deceitful demon. Um, mm. And so he kicks off this big brand of, of scepticism. But he, but he was the one who said that therefore he was he the one who said that therefore he knows he is real because his belief in God and and that is so real that someone must have placed him there. So he, so he took comfort from that knowing 
that he definitely exists. He just doesn't know what else exists around him or something like that. Yeah. If, I, yeah, if, I, yeah. if I'm not butchering that, probably. No, no, it, yeah, it, yeah, 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 precisely that. So Descartes says, how do I know anything is real? Everything might be the illusion of a demon who's doing this to me. Um, and then he says, well, the only thing I know for sure that exists is myself. Because if I'm doubting, if I'm skeptical, then there must be something that's doubting and skeptical. Every most philosophers are quite happy with that first move it does seem hard to deny that you exist but what he then goes on to do is give us a second move which is I can probably be confident that there's no evil demon because God exists and that's the bit that everyone is less sure about <laughs> yes yeah well for for many reasons I think um, <laughs> but it is odd yes. that, that yeah, time that, that era the 17th century as well as well as now of course yeah but but it's it's also weird seeing all the scientific uh, and we're going off on a tangent now, but, uh, but it's um, all the science and you read it and you go, yeah, that's, that's a fantastic thought. That's a fantastic experiment. And it's odd then just in today's age, especially when you're thinking about science, um, they then put it around off to God. So I guess it's, um, there, there are a lot of studies you read and especially in, in the book too, um, where they go, yeah, this fantastic point, that fantastic point, backed up by this, and you're like, oh, sweet, cool. And they go, and it's all because God. <laughs> and then, and it's so odd to see the two, because uh, I think in Western culture, whether you're religious or not, I think it's all in agreement that the church and science are kind of most, for the most part, separated. So it's, it's weird. It's a, it's a stark reminder yes. that so long ago, travel philosophy sort of started. So... Well, I mean, this separation of, of religion from science and philosophy, it's all pretty recent. Mm. I mean, you know, uh, just under 100 years, maybe, it starts to become commonplace. Right? So most of, um, most of Western history of these subjects, they've been deeply intertangled. It, um, it, yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a relatively new thing. I mean, Bertrand Russell was an atheist and he was still slammed for atheism at the start of the 20th century. It's just not that long ago. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty insane. So taking a bit of a more lighthearted approach now, <laughs> you said that you climbed Flattop Mountain. Yes, I did. Uh, how did that go? <laughs> well, it was very cold and rainy. Yeah. <laughs> and I did not climb the entire mountain. <laughs> there was a lot of snow still on the top and um, I did not have the appropriate equipment <laughs> um, so you can get about halfway up pretty easily in mm. the spare time when I visited and it was really quite a forbidding place actually uh, so you can look down on the city of Anchorage from there and that view is stunning but there are so many other mountains rearing up all around you it's actually it's not a friendly seeming place and I was there towards the end of the day I remember the sky was it was quite dark and cloudy um it was a re it was really dramatic actually mm. is how it felt um, Good like this the scene for a kind of thriller you wouldn't be surprised to see like a helicopter zooming across the sky or something yeah yeah but, but yeah but it was lovely and honestly when this lockdown is over and we can travel again i urge people to visit alaska it's this really gorgeous place and the tourist board there has made it very easy for people to travel responsibly there's a lot of information on, on how to do it Mm. and okay. avoid bears as much as you can <laughs> yes avoid bears <laughs> perfect yes. so you you mentioned this earlier as well um and and the direct quote you said 
when you saw Denali was that you didn't feel small, you felt brief. So, yeah. and I was just wondering a bit more into that moment and any of the time you felt that, what were your, what was the, the process and the thoughts that you were reflecting on in that moment? I work on the philosophy of space and time. So I think I'm always very sensitive to space time thoughts. Mm. But as a human being, we are very little, <laughs> spatially speaking. And I think it's quite common to have that experience of feeling very little. You know, you're walking through a city, through a city and there are huge skyscrapers, enormous skyscrapers sometimes rearing up either side of you. Or you're in a forest and there are enormous trees and you feel very little. What is less common, I think, is to have a sense of how short your life is mm. but when you're around these huge geographical features that feel like they've endured since eternity and they're going to be around until the end of the world and um, I think that can give you a reminder of that you know I'll live until I'm 70 if I'm lucky um, and these things are just going to be here for millennia or, you know tens of thousands of years and um, I think that kind of putting our lives in perspective is also good for us I think it's good to, I think it's good to reflect on the fact we're not around for very much and that there was a lot of world before us and there'll be a lot of world after us and um, and then thinking about what you're going to do with your life in those terms i think that can be helpful yeah i, I saw denali from a train yeah it, it, yeah it, uh, the park was closed because i was there at the wrong time of the year uh, so you round a corner on the train tracks and then suddenly it really sort of like rears up and you have quite a long time on the train before you get close to it and then you get to see it sort of close up it, like it, it's lots of forest all around the utter wilderness uh, really beautiful I, they, they, these train journeys are really stunning my understanding is in the summer um, there's a lot of tourists uh, taking these trains across Alaska and uh, um, if you're there in the winter or, or the sort of shoulder season and um, because there aren't many tourist activities to do in Alaska at that time there just aren't many tourists and um, so you can have this really uh, special experience of feeling like you're having it all to yourself yeah which it's nice as long as you're not also there to do all the activities that are closed. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That too. But in regards to Denali as well, for anyone listening uh, who needs a reminder, um, uh, we've done a podcast on it back in May. Um, John Gupta takes us through climbing it, but also it's 6,000, if I'm remembering the numbers correctly, 6,190 meters tall. It's mm -hmm. prominence is 6,140 meters. So you're sat at 50 meter sea level. And you can see right up to the top on a clear day. And um, so, yeah, it really would make you feel brief. The great one. The great one. Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah, I think even on a micro level, so you talked, you talked a lot then just about the macro level um, and how, you know, worlds before us, worlds after us. But even on a micro level, you know, if you're in a relationship that's going south or you're struggling with studies, it's nice to get that perspective of, um, of things around you and just understand, you know, even look into the stars and the moon and just, just realize how small you are and how actually you know, these, these, these things will pass. So, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I really like that really phrase. Positive used. Thing. <laughs> Pardon? I think it can be a really positive feeling. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, actually on a clear night, if you can see really deep into space, sometimes that gives you exactly the same 
sense. Uh, and yeah. I, yeah, I think it can be really wonderful. Yeah, yeah, puts things in its place, I think. So we're getting close to some wrap-up questions. And what I really liked is at the beginning and the end of the book, you have some of these vintage, uh, just so overtly outdated tips and travel advice. (laughs) Um, And the last one, which is the only one I would say wasn't really outdated, uh, was, um, oh, who was it? Um, no, not T.S. Eliot, because I really like the T.S. Eliot bit at the end. It was really poetic. It was point number eight, where it says, do not bore people with travel talk. <laughs> it said, you can't exchange more than three words with them before they are at the other side of the sea. <laughs> and, um, and I think it's a feeling that you, me, listeners have all too often, which is you go away and you do this epic thing, you know, where you've just gone backpacking and you just experience culture. You got food poisoning on day three or you've just climbed Mount Elbrus in Georgia and, and you just have this epic moment and you come back, back to your nine to five and you know, you're making coffee talking about it and no one really cares. And I, I didn't, I didn't know. Did you have any experience of that as well with, with, I mean, it's primarily with non-travel people, but did you have any experience of that at all with any of your trips? I definitely have had that experience. And I think that's actually a reason to travel with other people because mm. then you have people to share it with mm. it at the time and after you get home. Um, I try really hard actually not to talk about my travels because I'm really conscious how boring it is for other people. But I'm sure I have failed in that and have <laughs> bored people to tears as hard as I try. I'm sure I have. It's actually been um, an unexpected a nice side effect of writing this book about travel is that people want to know about my own travels. I mean, it's not questions you get asked very often. It's it's been a pleasure to talk about it. But yes, it's really hard. I think in general, it's hard not to talk about things that are on your mind, regardless of whether they're of interest to other people or not. Maybe you've developed a new hobby of bird watching and you really want to talk about it because that's what you're thinking about all the time. And the people around you are just nonplussed by this. I find actually during the lockdown, this is an issue and all of our lives are so boring. I'm having these catch up with friends and we're asking each other, what have you done? Like, well, I watched some Netflix. I went for a walk. yeah and it's like yeah i mean when you have your travel friends they're interested they want to know um but but yeah when you're talking to the other people in the office or uh the pub it's it's a bit different people are interested in photos i think a finite amount of photos people want to see and that's yeah like four to five (laughs) (laughs) if they're interested and um and it reminded me actually uh, something you said when you said about the bird watching was um, so football or if you're in America, soccer is massive everywhere, mm. especially in the UK. And I had the analogy for said, imagine you're not interested in football. This is what it sounds like when you listen to the news. They go, oh, so there's a great archaeological site, Doug. <laughs> um, this person dug this particular bone out the ground and they said this. And it just, it gives the complete, um situation of football but as if it was archaeology and in the most boring version of archaeology and it was like that's what it's like to people to open the newspaper and that's all you see is about archaeology that's what it's like and um <laughs> that's true yes. yeah so i like that bird watching analogy it's like fantastic and it can be fascinating but that's not my hobby <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> that's true 
So the last two questions before, just some quick and easy wrap-up ones, which is, I really wanted to end on this one because I, I really loved it. Uh, and it was, um, it was nice to see it so early on in the book as well. Um, the Great uh, Instauration? Instauration? Yeah, yeah. I yeah. don't know how to pronounce that word, actually. The Great <laughs> Instauration of, yeah, of Francis Bacon. Yeah. It, it means restoration or renewal, but I haven't the faintest how to pronounce it. Yeah, and, and it was those two pillars by the, by the, the Strait of Gibraltar saying, um, uh, it originally said, don't go any further, basically. But he changed it to a ship sailing through. Mm. And uh, yeah, I just really wanted to hear your thoughts and opinions on, on the importance and why we should always be expanding and learning more and adapting. So Bacon did this because he thought that the only way science would progress was for people to go out into the world um, and observe it um, and even take back things from it. So new creatures, new plants, strange rocks. Um, Which the British Empire took a bit too far. (laughs) Far too far. Yeah, agreed. Well, and of course, Bacon's scientific enterprise was piggybacking on the back of the search for new trade routes and new lands to colonise that was already going on. I mean, he didn't, he wasn't paying these new scientists. These people were already going out there. And then he was getting to say to these, you know, merchants or, or military men, while you're out there, could you please bring back all this stuff for me? Yeah, so the two things did go hand in hand. Um, but that, that image if you leave aside the dark, the dark side of colonialization, and that image that humans should always be like pushing further and going beyond, I think is inspirational. And I think we are trying. There's a lot of um, initiatives now to see what's at the bottom of the oceans, to get out into outer space. And, and that does seem like a good thing actually and mm. um, it's not obvious where these things are going to take us and um, but it seems like knowing more about the universe we live in can only be a good thing mm. maybe that's too strong maybe we'll discover some awful things <laughs> if we get out of the solar system but it seems like it's going to be um, and i think human curiosity is a big motivating factor yeah. in stuff and it's interesting that in the last few years there's been uh, us noises about like putting boots on mars and from higher political echelons than there has been previously i'll be interested to see whether anything comes of that in our lifetimes yeah yeah so last question for some easy wrap-up ones which is in all of your traveling and you are a very well established academic and you've got a lot of experience there but with traveling specifically what's one moment that you would love to relive I'd like to go back to Antarctica, honestly. It it was the most alien place I've ever been and staggeringly beautiful. And I I would happily go back, I think. It was really really unearthly and really special. And how did you go about doing that? Was that that a study that you were doing or or was it recreational and you saved? (laughs) I I was backpacking in South America um, and you can get a ship off a Shwire and if you're there in person and you're lucky you might get a cheap one and because at that point the boats are trying to fill up their spaces because you know no one's going to book from abroad a day before but if you're there on the ground you might just get a cheap 
Macbeth, and I did. It wasn't oh, wow. cheap by backpacker standards at all, and it was the most expensive part of the entire trip. Um, but looking back, it was very cheap, and it was just outstanding, really. I was also the youngest person on the ship by several decades, I think. that Generally, the people who can afford to go are much older, you know, American tourists who are making a special trip. Um, yeah. yeah, but if you're there in person, you can just get lucky. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Okay, so some wrap-up questions then. In your book, you talk about Davis changing its name to the to North Pole, uh, which is a town where a great marketer had a great idea, and, uh, and it certainly brought in tourism. Even if you did, even if you have, I think correctly described it in the book as being quite sad. Um, it's, yes, it's the town in Alaska where Christmas is happening all year round. 365 days a year yeah um and i was wondering do you have another geographical place in your head where you'd love to change the name and uh and mark it away that way that is a good question not obviously oh okay yes all right i have one for you so there's this town in the netherlands that has a charles dickens festival every december and the Charles Dickens Festival involves everybody dressing up in Dickens costumes. And of course, it, um, it's all Dutch people dressing up in Dickens costumes, which adds this slight air of unreality to the proceedings. <laughs> because you expect everyone to be speaking like they're in Victorian London. That's not the case. Uh, but it's a fabulous thing to visit. Um, they have all of the Victorian foods like being sold. And they dress up the houses uh, with sort of fake chimneys and like Victorian paraphernalia lying around and actually I would happily see that all year round and um, it was really magical I think that would be great and they could sell all the books year round that'd be perfect. great perfect I like that <laughs> <laughs> and um when you're out traveling do you prefer just silence and thoughts or do you, do you are you a big fan of music reading all the music Reading. I think I tend to read huge amounts while I'm away. I'm, I listen to music a bit, but reading is generally the main thing. So, what are three non-negotiable books that you'd that you'd bring to go and go and do a trip? Assuming you wanted to bring ones you've already read or have plans. I actually don't tend to bring books I've already read. It tends to be new books, but I can tell you the genres that they would be. Oh, of course, I yeah. have a few different ones on the go. <laughs> <laughs> so there'll be one serious philosophy book, um, of course, furthering research for when I'm feeling more awake on trains. <laughs> and then there will always be um, a travel book about the place I'm visiting by way of trying to understand the place that I'm seeing. And then there'll always be something fictional. If I can, I like to read fiction about the place that I'm visiting, or at least by an author of the place like again another way of trying to get into it in some countries that's harder than others you can't necessarily find english translations of big novels or and in some countries it's also harder in unexpected ways so canada for example has a more limited number of famous novelists than you might think oh really <laughs> yeah. even with all those beautiful mountains for inspiration 
But really, yeah, you ask Canadians for fiction recommendations and you'll get the same three or four names over and over. It's actually really hard to break out past those. <laughs> or at least as someone who doesn't know a lot about Canadian literature. Yeah, oh, I love but, that. but those are the three kinds of books that I would always have with me. And you have to have a Kindle now because when I was a backpacker, I was always lugging like five or six books in my backpack. The beauty of just having <laughs> hundreds of them on a tiny device. I really value. Yeah, yeah. And it has to be cheap, so if you break it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So, last question then, and going back to Alaska, if you could do it all again, what's one thing that you would do differently? I would like to go back in a different season, I think. So, I was there in spring, and the ice breakup season is gorgeous. It, with the, the rivers are kind of cracking, and there's still snow on the ground. Uh, but it did mean that I didn't have a sense of how it would look in summer, for example, where the, everything is green and the leaves are out and, and there's much more wildlife uh, easily viewable by the tourist. And um, I think that would be really stunning, actually, to see it in a different season. Perfect. And actually, frankly, just to go deeper in, it is in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to go further into it is massive yeah it is an enormous state i really saw a tiny amount of it i would love to see more so listen let's plug something if we wanted to learn more about the meaning of travel what could we do (laughs) you can buy the book (laughs) readily available online (laughs) you can look it up on amazon yeah Um, I have also done a five books interview where I nominated five philosophical books about travel and they're really quite fun I think Mm. so for example there's a book about travellers and travel lies which is looking at um, travellers who just made everything up Um, so I would also (laughs) check out that list of recommendations cool yeah and I the books are all designed to get you thinking about travel, about the process of travel, what's really going on. So you might enjoy that. Perfect. I'll put that in the link in the show notes and I'll also put your Twitter account in the show notes because what I really like is that you every now and then tweet out a random fact about something. (laughs) So I I enjoy that. There's a lot of random facts about travel in my Twitter. It's definitely (laughs) true. (laughs) Well, listen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great. Cheers. And that really was a fun session to record. It was great chatting with Emily about the philosophical side, the meaningful side of travel. It's something I think about quite a bit. So it's great that a book has been written and like we said, I'm pretty damn sure it's the first one of its kind. So I really recommend you go and pick it up. If you did enjoy this interview, then please subscribe and follow and share it with a friend who you think might like it as well. And you can come on the show if you email btmtravelpod at gmail.com And if you want to join in with the community too, then you can do at BTM Travel Pod on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. But otherwise, have a brilliant day and I'll see you in the next one.